It's Wednesday, May 19th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm Rebecca Darst. Today, we have an interview between my co-host, John Ellis, and veteran political analyst, Charlie Cook. Tomorrow, John and I will be back to talk about the latest news covered in John's newsletter, News Items. See you then. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. Our guest today is Charlie Cook, the founder and editor of the Cook Political Report, which is the gold standard of American political newsletters, covering national, state, and local politics with admirable objectivity and, one must say, relentless hard work. He's been doing this for roughly 40 years, I think that's right, and has built an essential service for those interested, for whatever reason, in American politics. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, John. Uh, before I started the newsletter, right, you and I met about in 1978, and you defined for me the role of a political reporter. Uh, I modeled after your work at NBC's uh, Elections Unit. Well, that's nice of you to say. I appreciate it. We had some fun back then. We've been friends for a long time, and uh, this is uh, this is going to be fun, I know. Well, my wife is always telling me to cut to the chase, so I, I will cut to the chase and ask you, 2022 is coming up. Uh, your newsletter covers uh, American politics, as I said before, as well as any. Why don't we go through the prospects in the United States Senate races, the governor races, and the House races? Why don't we start with the Senate? What do you see happening there? Well, obviously, if the Senate's 50-50, I mean, history works against Democrats, clearly. Midterm elections are almost always referendum on incumbent presidents, you know, number one. But that's offset a little bit by um, exposure, where Republicans have, you know, far more seats up. And, and secondly, they have more open seats. And so you sort of take the historic advantages that Republicans have from the, the standpoint of a midterm election, the midterm election dynamics. And then you look at the exposure difference and uh, it kind of evens it out more. At the end of the day, I think it's uphill for, for Democrats to hold on to the, their majority in the Senate, but there's so much we don't know. Um, I've learned that it's not good to bet against history. They're usually when you have these strong patterns, there's a reason for it. You know, we're going to be watching, you know, Richard Burr, his open seat in North Carolina. Obviously, Rob Portman's in Ohio, but that's a little more uphill for Democrats. Pennsylvania with Pat Toomey uh, retiring. You know, those are going to be classics. You know, for Democrats, I think Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire you know, my assumption is that Chris Sununu, the governor, gets in, and that's going to be an incredibly close race. I think what's going to stand out about this year in the Senate is going to be that the playing field will be smaller than it oftentimes is, and a lot smaller than it was last time, but it's going to be fought just as intensely. It's just going to be a smaller footprint of races. You know, you always have to look and see what happened last time, and these were the seats that were up in 2016. And so you always kind of need to be cognizant of that. But uh, Maggie Hassan's most vulnerable Democratic incumbent, Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, would be on the Republican side. But, you know, it's going to be fun. It's like eight seats, right? I mean, there's sort of five that the Dems can pick up and three the Republicans. Could... Yeah, if you just narrow it down and say what states are competitive, throw out all the, the gimme putts on both sides. It's roughly even in terms of exposure. What about the governors? You know, this is the big cycle. You know, you always have about three dozen governor's races up in midterm elections. And then the uh, presidential year, you know, it's only like, what, 11. And then there are five on the yeah. off cycle. 
Um, yeah, they're not getting much attention this time. I mean, there are obviously some big ones up, but to be honest, this day and age, I kind of delegate uh, to Jessica Taylor, the governors, and I don't watch them as closely as I, I used to. Mm-hmm. I've found that if you're doing macro, like the national environment, and presidential and all that, it makes it hard to follow on a granular basis a lot of individual races. So I sort of stick more to the Senate and to the House in, in terms of control and then look for sort of the broader things going on. And, you know, we still don't know what role that former President Trump would be playing in the midterm election. And given that the turnout in 2018 midterm was a record high, the highest since 1914, and 2020 presidential, the highest since 1900. And Donald Trump was the force that drove out huge turnout among those that loved him and those that loathed him. And the question in 2022, I think probably the biggest single question is going to be who, which side is going to have more drop off, Democrats with the Trump haters dropping off or Republicans with the Trump lovers dropping off? Or, or will there be a drop off? Back, I guess, you know, when we were covering politics in the 80s and 90s, Peter Hart used to say there are there are national elections and there are local elections and, you know, whichever party was advantaged by a local election, you know, then, then they would try to localize the election as much as possible. The other party would try to nationalize it as much as possible. That's sort of not an option anymore. Is there, is, is there, yeah. anything, is there anything like a local election? Yeah, when Tip O'Neill said all, all politics is local, you know, it was probably a little bit of hyperbole, but it was right enough. But now everything's nationalized. I mean, when you look at every single Senate race in 2016 going exactly the same way that state was going in the presidential in this past time, it was everyone but Susan Collins in May. People are voting. It's almost parliamentary. They're voting red. They're voting blue. And there's practically no ticket splitting. So being a, a politician with a good local brand doesn't mean much at all anymore. It's a party brand, not a personal brand. Right. Given that, and given Trump looming over all of this, obviously, especially on the Republican side and primary challenges and that sort of thing, is Trump being present, shall we say, that's good for the Democrats, right? Because that motivates the anti-Trump vote uh, more than it might otherwise be motivated. I mean, if Trump wasn't really a factor in 2022, it would seem to me that all of those people who turned out specifically to vote against Trump uh, would be disinclined to vote or less inclined to vote. Yeah, I think that's true. But on the other hand, what about those people that turned out because of Donald Trump? You know, I can make a really good argument for each side's vote dropping off. And the answer may be both sides have a a very significant drop off from where they were in in the last two elections. But, you know, you have to have a devil to beat on. And I can argue that Republican voters might be more motivated than Democrats because, you know, if I were a candidate and had a choice of people loving me or people hating my opponent, I would much rather them hate my opponent than love me because I think hate is a stronger emotion in politics. I think that's one reason why midterm elections tend to be so bad for incumbent party presidents is the people that are out of power and that are angry are more incentivized to vote than the people that are happy that their team won two years earlier. And uh, I think the Biden administration and the narrow Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, that they're doing enough to stir the pot that uh, 
you probably will see a lot of motivated Republicans out there, but can Democrats motivate their people enough to offset it? That's one of the things we're going to be watching. I mean, we have to talk about Trump. So we've seen the stolen election fantasy and, you know, we're still in that, I guess, with Arizona. The audit is one of my favorite stories, the audit in Arizona. (laughs) But obviously there's a rift amongst what you might call traditional conservative Republicans and the Trump populist party. It seems to me that Trump is the Republican Party now, that figures like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney are the fringe figures, not the sort of base figures. But, you know, what is your view of the, quote, Republican civil war that we keep reading about in the pages of the Washington Post, for instance? I confess that I was using the civil war metaphor, uh, like a lot of other people, But I thought Jeff Greenfield had a really good column last weekend, I guess it was, uh, in Politico magazine, where he said that it's not a civil war. It's more of a purge, Mm -hmm. you know, a purge that's taking place of Republican elected and party officials that are not sufficiently loyal to uh, former President Trump. And that a civil war sort of implies some remote symmetry. And there really isn't. So I think purge is a better term here. You know, I think part of what's going on is the product of political segregation, is that people are now, they're in silos, and they tend to live with people that see things the way they do and work with them and socialize and social media and all these kinds of things. So that so many people, virtually everybody they know votes the same way they do. And so they have a hard time accepting the fact that more people might be supportive of a different party, a different side. Therefore, if you lose, you don't lose. It's stolen from you. We're in a society now, I think, that you know people either A, win, or B, they're cheated. Right. That those are the two possible outcomes. And losing an election is just more than their minds can come up with. But you know, there are a lot of problems going on, but voter fraud is virtually non-existent. Yeah. During George W. Bush's administration, you know, they had a close to a five-year effort looking for voter fraud around the country at the Justice Department, and they found virtually nothing. And Heritage Institute has created a database of election fraud cases over the last close to 40 years, and it's minuscule. There is so little voter fraud taking place in this country right now that it's kind of laughable. And, you know, every responsible Republican I know, they don't argue with that. Uh, right. But it's, it's just, uh, I think you used the term fantasy. I mean, that's exactly what it is. But I think with a lot of Republicans, not necessarily all elected officials, but with a lot of Republican voters, they genuinely believe that election fraud's rampant, that there are buses that are hauling minority voters from one polling place to another. Mm-hmm. So they can vote five or six or 10 times. The thing that was remarkable to me was how well run the 2020 election was, given the pandemic and and everything. I thought it was astonishingly well executed, if you will. Yeah, there was so much that could have gone wrong. But you know what reminded me of Y2K? Right. You know, there was a, a possibility that everything could go to hell because of, you know, the, the clocks and calendars changing. The digits. And yeah. people prepared for it. They watched for it. And it ended up being a nothing burger. Now, part of the reason it became a nothing burger is that people were aware of the potential for a problem and acted on it. Right. Well, we had a lot of notice, or a decent amount of notice. And 
election officials, state, local level, they did workarounds. And as you say, it was remarkable how they were able to execute this. You know, it's easy to get discouraged about our political process, but arguably that was the success story that we were able to pull off a very competent election under the unbelievable circumstances. Yeah, and with massive turnout. Yeah, and with record, exactly, with record high turnout. You wrote a column, I guess, what, last week and talked about how the Trump agenda or the Trump set of yeah. issues uh, was not going away anytime soon or perhaps anytime at all, but that Trump himself was fading a little bit. Could you walk the listeners through that? Yeah. Basically, I asked the folks at Heart Research who do the Democratic side of the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which is my favorite of all the national polls. Mm -hmm. They've been asking Republicans and independents who lean Republican, do you consider yourself more a Trump supporter or more a supporter of the Republican Party? And what they had been finding through a lot of the Trump presidency was that uh, more Republicans identify as Trump supporters than as loyal to the party, to the extent that uh, in the last NBC Wall Street Journal poll before the election, it was 54% of Republicans said they were more loyal to Trump compared to 38% that they were more loyal to the party. Well, in January, those lines met again at 46%. And now the more loyal to the party is 50 and Trump is 44. But more importantly, when you look at the numbers within those two groups, and I got them to, to split it out for me, that among the people that were more supportive of Trump, that the percentage that rates him very positively, right. that's dropped from uh, 91% in January of 2020, and it was at uh, 94% just before the election. Well, that's down to 75%. It's not that Republicans are turning on him, but the intensity and the enthusiasm about him is waning. And you saw that on the other side with Republicans who consider themselves more party people, the very positive for Trump dropped from, you know, it had been 49, 51, 47, 50, and now it's down to 31%. And I don't think the, the Trump message, sort of the populism, nationalism, isolationism, you know, maybe ethnocentrism. I think all these isms, I think they're just as potent on the Republican side as they were before. But I think you're starting to see Trump Republicans as seeing him as perhaps a flawed vehicle and that there will be a Trump candidate, you know, nominee probably in 2024. It's just probably not going to end up being Donald Trump. You know, it could be Ron DeSantis or Mike Pompeo or, you know, Josh Hawley or who the heck, you know, it could be a lot of people. And whoever they nominate may very well embody the Trump message, but may not be him. And he always was his own worst enemy. Right. If you think of the Republican Party on a continuum and you start off with Tom Dewey and Dwight Eisenhower and Nixon and Jerry Ford, and I'm going to come back to Reagan in a second. You know, then go through, take the last five, both the presidents, Bush, uh, think of uh, nominees like Romney and, and, and John McCain. They were all in a straight line. Barry Goldwater was the one deviation from that. And even with President Reagan, you know, he ran as such an outsider in 76 against President Ford. 
But by the time he won the nomination in 1980, you know, he had taken a step or so towards the establishment. The establishment had taken two or three steps towards him. So they really weren't that, that far apart. But Donald Trump was more an embodiment of the Pat Buchanan and Sarah Palin, something that's sort of alien to that legacy Republican Party. And I think the party's just at a real different place, but that President Trump's flaws are getting more apparent. I mean, it was either going to be absence makes the heart grow fonder or out of sight, out of mind. And I think it's probably going to be more the latter, that he's just not going to have the visibility and not, you know, enthusiasm towards him will wane, but the party's not going back the other direction anytime soon, I don't think. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back talking to Charlie Cook about American politics. Welcome back to News Items. Charlie, I don't want to devote all of our time to President Trump, which we did for the last four years, um, and wanted to ask you two questions. One, one of the statistics that sort of blew my mind about the 2020 election is that the left liberal fundraising group, Act Blue, raised $1.5 billion in the third quarter of 2020, not the calendar year, but the third quarter. You've been covering this stuff for, as I say, many decades. How has the money changed in politics? I think there is so much money sloshing around our system in both sides that I don't think a lot of elections are getting won or lost because of money. And that, you know, one thing that matters a lot more is not who's got more money, but it's does a side have enough to do what they need to do? I mean, do they have enough to build a campaign, get their message across? You know, there's a law of diminishing returns in terms of the effectiveness of, of campaign spending. And that in all the tier one and tier two races, they are more than adequately funded in both sides. So, yes, it was remarkable, but, but it showed the intensity of the hatred within the Democratic Party. And I think also Democratic donors were more comfortable going to online platforms to make contributions. They took to that. They were younger. Uh, and I think you had, you had people that had never donated to political candidates before that were doing it because it was made easy and accessible, very simple. And, you know, of course, uh, obviously the RNC was doing a heck of a lot of the same thing for President Trump, but it's mind boggling amounts of money. But again, both sides have enormous amounts of money and they get to a point where they have to invent new ways to spend money. Yeah. One of the things that interested me actually about the 2020 election, I was talking to a guy, I'm sure his mutual friend, Larry McCarthy, who said that a number of the Republican Senate candidates ended up with significant sums of money left over after the election and weren't quite sure what they were going to do with it, which I thought was... You saw that on both sides where Sarah Gideon in Maine had, what, three or four million bucks at the end. Part of what happens, though, is that they're buying time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these things don't get completed. And so they get refunds after the election. So a lot of times they're not even aware of how much money they're going to have at the end. But again, yeah, it's that law of diminishing returns. And television just doesn't work anymore. But the alternatives to television are not nearly as expensive as the old TV-driven model was. I have one last thing. We had to get, get, get the quick read on Virginia governor. Is our guy Terry going to make it or is the Carlisle man going to make it? For 
McAuliffe to win, what is it only once in the last, what, 30, 40 years has the party in the White House been able to hold on to the Virginia governorship? And that was when Terry McAuliffe won the first time. Uh, I think Virginia is, it's trending away from, I mean, I think Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, rather than trending Democrat, I think they're reverting to the mean. They're becoming more in the center politically and more just nationally. But I think Virginia is changing. Virginia is, I think it's just getting more democratic and it's going to be uphill. And, you know, we're going to see all the anti-Romney, anti-private equity ads recycled and used against Youngkin. So I would put my money on McAuliffe winning the primary and probably winning the general election. But you know, we have a some tough economy, a lot of inflation, or the Biden this Biden thing doesn't work out so well. Then I could easily see how Republicans could hold on to that. Yeah, but the, the forces within the state of Virginia seem to be trending a lot more Democratic. Yeah, does Newsom survive? I think so. You know, the thing is that the Gray Davis was such an anomaly. I look over at Wisconsin with Scott Walker right. that Americans believe in elections. And if you don't like an elected official, right. that's when you throw them out, is when they up, come up for re-election. And uh, I think it takes really unusual circumstances for people to remove a governor via referendum. I just don't think, or impeachment, well, what we call. I don't think that happens much. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think Newsom has covered himself with glory, but at the same time, the Republican Party is in such bad shape in that state that, you know, if they dropped any further, there'd be a third party. (laughs) All right. We're going to have to cut it off here, but thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, John. It was a lot of fun. Those that want more of the Cook Political Report should go to cookpolitical.com. Yeah. Charlie, we hope to have you on again many times to help guide our listeners through the next couple of years of American politics. I would love that very much. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on John Ellis's newsletter of the same name, available at newsitems.substack.com. And you can find my analysis of the wide world of real assets at investableuniverse.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. See you again tomorrow.